There it is. All right, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another fun episode. We're going to have a good time. I know the title says uh, dating and polyvagal theory. That is definitely what we're going to be talking about. But we're also going to we're also going to be talking about sexuality and religion. So this is going to be a fun one. Uh, tune in. We're going to have fun. It's Tuesday. It's fine. We'll, we'll make it. We'll be good. Practicing polyamory. Real life perspectives from the imperfect people of polyamory. The mission of the Practicing Polyamory podcast is to provide a platform for all of the real-life, flawed humans that practice polyamory so that we might all learn from one another and grow as a community. Enjoy the show. All right, all right, everybody. Seriously, we we are going to have a good time today. So welcome, welcome, welcome on this uh, somewhat cloudy day here in San Diego. But it's it's nice. It's good. We're we're always here. We're always good here in Southern California. Can't go wrong. Uh, before we jump in and chat with our awesome guest today, just want to quickly remind everybody to please subscribe to the show. Uh, all social media at Practicing PolyA, and if you're listening on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app, please subscribe, leave a review wherever it is that you download the pod. It'll really help us to show up higher on those search results. Also, if you want to support the show, help me out. Uh, send me a DM on whatever your favorite social media is. Ask me about your malpractice or your errors in emissions insurance. I'm an insurance guy. I want to help you out. Uh, you're already paying for it. You know, I can help you. I, I would love to. All right. And lastly, as always, a reminder, if you are listening to this podcast, you are a welcome to guest to be on the show. If you're actively polyamorous, polyam curious, or a professional serving the polyamorous community, we want to hear your story. Doesn't matter if you're disabled, BIPOC, pan, de bi, demi, gay, straight, sex worker, kingster, queer, lesbian, trans, NB, ace, arrow, whatever. I think I nailed all of them. I think I got them all. But whoever you are, we want to hear your stories. Remember that the more stories we hear, the more the world can learn and hear about us, the more representation we have, and the better we can serve our community. All right. That's always the intro. Now onto the good stuff. Introducing our awesome guest. Today's guest is a counselor and activist with a focus on religious trauma. He offers sex-positive, trauma-informed therapy and helps his clients explore questions of gender and orientation, kink and polyamory, and healing from religious shame. His clients are sex workers and parents, queer folks with elaborate polycules, and mono-cishet families struggling with religious reconversion. Our guest's passion has always been on relationship minorities and sex positivity, and he spends 90 minutes every week providing, oh, I forgot to ask, is it a free educational program? Yeah, we're, we're on Free YouTube, educational program. Wherever your fine podcast or podcasted, all that good kind of stuff. We're awesome, awesome. It's a, it's a call-in podcast for people struggling with religious shame and guilt. Today's awesome guest believes there is more than enough love in the world to go around, but our prejudices, past hurts, and unskilled communication leave many of us feeling damaged and disconnected. So let's see what we can learn about reconnecting with our true selves and joyfully exploring our journeys of finding more love. Joining us today from Valence Counseling out of Austin, Texas, host of the Secular Secular Sexuality Podcast. Trying to say that five times fast. Mm -hmm. Welcome to the show, Christy Powell. <laughs> I forgot to warn you about our movie clips. <laughs> yeah, no. So I, I I've listened to the podcast. I haven't caught the video version. It's nice to see the sounds that go with that. 
Ah. Yeah, I, I feel seen. I, uh, I really appreciate the introduction and the, uh, the deep dive into everything. And uh, yeah, I'm just excited to be doing this. Oh, I'm glad that you're here with us. I really appreciate you spending some time. Uh, tell me first a little bit about yourself, your background, and what got you to where you are today. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I am primarily a gender and sexuality therapist here in Austin. Uh, I have a background working in uh, like a crisis hotline and psychiatric hospitals and, you know, things that are, are really more on the acute side of counseling uh, where there's mm -hmm. more danger involved and, and things like that. But my passion has always been for relationships, uh, just the different ways that people connect. The whole idea of valence counseling is this notion that people can bond in all of these different ways. Uh, it mm -hmm. doesn't just need to be a strict pair bond. Uh, there are lots of different uh, polycules, lots of different isotopes, lots of different ways for people to connect. And when they do, it really fundamentally changes their behavior. It fundamentally changes some of the properties of their identity and mm -hmm. all of these different things. And I've just found that interplay between individuals fascinating. So uh, issues of gender and sexuality, kink and polyamory have always been a, a real big focus of mine. And in working with those kinds of folks, it didn't take long for it to become really clear that I, if not a majority, then a huge percentage of the people I was working with were really struggling with religious trauma, uh, which right. is a some something of a newish idea in a lot of ways in terms of uh, being recognized and, and really explored by the therapist community. Uh, mm -hmm. And I've been really excited to partner with the atheist community of Austin to be able to talk about religious trauma, particularly as it impacts our sexuality, our relationships and, and these kinds of things. And uh, yeah, I've been I've been here in Austin kind of cobbling all of that together into a, a nice little career for the last five years or so. Nice, nice. Uh, this that is a huge topic. I mean, 30 minutes is what we have on this show, but you are spending 90 minutes every week talking specifically about, about the sexuality and, uh, well, it's called secular sexuality. So it's sexuality just apart from religion or, or basically dismantling all of the shame and guilt that comes from uh, the, the religious aspects of it. I mean, I come from a religious family. Uh, I read a little bit on your bio. I think you also come from a religious family. Mm -hmm. So uh, anybody that, that does understands that there's a lot of, well, stigma to say the very least, right? And, and our, our more religious family members are definitely going to give us the stink eye, you know, when they find out that we are anything other than heteronormative. So, right. um, one of the, one of the things that I was talking about yesterday with, uh, with my guest was societal trauma. And I'm sure mm -hmm. that this comes up for you a lot. Just, just that, that, uh, idea of, you know, when we come out in whichever way that we do, that there's backlash. What kinds of things do you tell your clients? What kinds of things are they dealing with, I guess? And how do you help them overcome the, that, that specific trauma? Sure. Uh, well, I guess I'll, I'll just say quickly that like secular sexuality is put out by the atheist community of Austin. I am, you know, a board member with them and very, you know, directly an atheist. And I acknowledge that, and there's no reason to, to really hide that. But 
that doesn't mean that my clinical work is specifically and exclusively about getting rid of religion. It's really mm -hmm. about recognizing the trauma that can often be caused by religion. And so for you know, I'm sure a lot of folks that are listening, that trauma comes in the form of telling your parents about your more than two relationship or wanting to introduce them to some other important person in your life and not having permission to feeling like you have to hide that in some way. And so mm -hmm. because that's not it's not at all a unique experience, but it's not always that obvious. One of the biggest parts of working with religious trauma is just sort of empowering people to identify it in their own lives. You know, it's just in the water that we're, we're all swimming in. It's in the air that we're all breathing. There's mm -hmm. so many assumptions about our world, about right and wrong, about what is okay and what is acceptable that isn't really examined and that is coming directly from a religious worldview. And so even people who don't hold on to that worldview have probably had experiences of being discriminated against because they are something other than cisgender heterosexual, allosexual, monogamous. And there's no reason to feel like we need to live that way. But my work is oftentimes about just pointing out to people, there's a reason why this is harder. There's a reason why this is uncomfortable. Does polyamory require incredible communication skills? Yes, it does. But I don't know that that means that polyamory is actually harder than monogamy. Unless you're living in an oppressive society that treats it like it's a hell of a lot harder. And so learning to identify those things is a, is a big part of uh, the type of work that I do. I would say that we, for the most part, we do live in, in a society that is, I don't know if I want to use the word oppressive. Um, it's definitely not affirming or accepting, right? Uh, and I don't, I don't know that it's, and, and, you know, there are instances, there are some areas where any kind of adultery is illegal, right? I, I can't remember if it's fines or jail time or whatever, but like adultery, anything outside of the marriage is considered illegal. So in those, <clears throat> excuse me, in those instances, okay, yes, oppressive would probably be a good, uh, a good descriptor. Um, but I'm in Southern California, you know, I don't think that there's any laws like that for me. I mean, sure, I can't marry all of my partners, you know, or people can't marry multiple partners. Would you call that oppression? Yeah, you know, I, I actually am comfortable using that term. Um, yeah, I, I want to be mindful and respectful of folks that are living under much more difficult cir circumstances than I am here. Mm -hmm. But we still see these things like bubble up into our society in so many places. I, whenever I'm talking to clients and they are maybe having doubts as they're like opening up a relationship and things aren't necessarily going the way that they expected, I like to point out that it, it makes sense that things aren't necessarily going well. There's no social support. There is right. no, uh, you know, there's no Julia Roberts movie for a poly couple to like <laughs> lean on. There's no Phil Collins song for them to relate to. You know, I mean, my references might be a little dated regardless, but it's worth noticing that we don't have Hallmark cards at the, uh, at the grocery store. I mean, there just right. are so many places where this world isn't built for poly folks. And the amount of 
harassment that poly people often experience through online dating, mm. the uh, tension that they get from yes. family members around a lot of these issues. Like, I, I do feel comfortable referring to that as a form of oppression. And we yeah. don't need to get into like a oppression Olympics to discuss, you know, sure. who has it worst. But I, I do think that we can go ahead and label that for what it is. Yeah, yeah, I, I appreciate that. You know, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, it's, it's a lesson that I learned from uh, my wife several years back uh, when, you know, <laughs> when, when, when she started telling me or educating me around uh, issues of race, right? I grew up here in Southern California, you know, Mexican, surrounded by a bunch of Mexicans. So I never really experienced racism, right? And then I joined the Navy and, you know, in the Navy, we're all just making racist jokes at each other. Like that's kind sure. of almost yeah. what, you know, what, what we do. It's, you know, it, at the time, you know, it's changed a lot. Right. It's changed a lot ever since I got out. But, uh, you know, kind of a boys club. And, you know, we we make those kinds of jokes at each other. And so, like, I never personally felt, you know, racially uh, profiled or, or anything along those lines. And it wasn't until. Fine by me. Exactly. I was like, yeah, no, it's fine. We just make these jokes. It's no big deal. And, uh, you know. It wasn't until until afterwards that I started realizing well the one what she said to me this was the exact line she said just because you've never experienced it doesn't mean it doesn't exist yeah and absolutely. so that's the line that I'm going to use for oppression in what we're talking about right now just because I've never experienced that oppression doesn't mean it doesn't exist and I definitely see stories all the time of people who are, you know, trying to date online and, you know, they're, they're getting attacked. How dare you want more than two people? You're selfish. You're a whore and all these different things. And it's, yeah. it's absolutely terrible. So transitioning a little bit, since it's in the title, um, finding joy in dating can be tough, especially if we're having those kinds of experiences or, you know, when we live in small towns where there's not a lot of population and a lot of you know a lot of people we want to be open and honest we want to tell people about being polyamorous right because this is like part of our ethos and so when we have those conversations it just shuts down shuts down you know any interest so how can people from your opinion how can people find the joy in dating despite that kind of rejection yeah i, I think the key to it all is just enjoying the process. So often we get into this mindset that dating is a destination, you know, that we're, what we're really here to do is to give somebody a job interview and see if they check off all the appropriate boxes. And is this somebody that you could see eventually after a little bit of training, being somebody that you could like fall in love with and share a life with. And that kind of like courtship mentality was absolutely beaten into me as a kid. I mean, when I had like my first really serious crush uh, in like seventh or eighth grade, uh, my my parents gave me a copy of uh, Joshua Harris's I Kiss Dating Goodbye, uh, which is a, a book that I know a lot of folks who grew up in a very like purity culture style of evangelicalism will recognize. And that notion is really prevalent in our culture. It's basically this idea that you are, that you never date, that dating is pointless, that the whole 
job here is to just find that one person that you're going to spend the rest of your life with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And even when poly folks get away from that idea, we can still get kind of suckered into this vortex that makes it seem as if we only go on a first date so that you can get to a second date. And you only go to a second date to see if you can get to the third date. And you don't actually mm. enjoy the dating part. It's not until you have a relationship that you can start to have a good time. Ah. And I, I like to push back against that idea and remind people that bad dates can be a blast. That you know, there's a <laughs> good reason to go out and enjoy yourself on these things. I mean, obviously, we're all struggling to stay safe this year and wanting to right. be mindful of who we're spending that one-on-one -on -one time with. But nevertheless, just have a good time. If I, I wasn't aware that was something a person could do. Best clip, best clip. Um, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, though. It's when we are able to be in the moment, right? Because so so many times we find ourselves living in, in the future and worrying about, like you said, the first date is the point is to get to the second date, the point is to get to the third, and the point is to have a relationship, as opposed to if we can just enjoy the time right then and there for the moment for what it is, you know, we, we could potentially find a lot more joy just in that, just in that moment. Is that basically what it is? Yeah, I, I think that it's important to just enjoy the process uh, and to step away from this like really evaluative mentality that says that we are going through and like checking boxes and trying to see if somebody measures up in these mm -hmm. different ways, as opposed to just meeting people where they're at, enjoying them for their own sake and worrying less about what the future is going to hold versus like, do I want another cup of coffee? Do I want to get another beer? Do I want to, you know, take this date to the ice cream shop next to the restaurant? Like, do I want this to continue versus, well, can I see myself in five years? I, I'm just not interested in that conversation. I just notice people getting so far ahead of themselves. Yep. As opposed to just, again, just take the time, enjoy the moment, live in the now and, you know, enjoy your date for what it is. I love that. I love that. Um, any other advice, any other dating advice, you know, especially for for polyam, anybody who's dealing with that, uh, you know, religious sexual trauma that we're talking about right now? We'll, we'll get right back to that because that's that's good sure. stuff. Yeah, well, there's a, you know. I, I work with a lot of different people in my clinical practice, and I see a lot of different sorts of folks, but there is a conversation I've had probably 10 million times uh, around a, you know, really sweet, cute, uh, cishet Christian couple that got married at like 20 to 25, mm -hmm. and then they find themselves at like 30 or 35, and they still like each other but they've never really dated before and they've never mm -hmm. really explored the world. And so they see polyamory as perhaps a way of, uh, of jumping back into that, of like miss, of getting back what they missed out on. And so they try to go on all these first dates and they're all super excited about it. And then they just get super overwhelmed. And I, <laughs> I know that folks who have been in the poly community for a long time are, are definitely familiar with this, but there's a reason why a lot of people who have been out as poly for a couple of years don't really want to date anybody their first year in the community. Mm. Uh, it's a little bit bumper cars. Like there's a lot yeah. of just sort of smashing into each other. And so 
I always try to remind people, especially if you are listening to a podcast like this because you're curious and questioning and wanting to open up and, you know, looking in, slow down. Don't get into that gold rush mentality. You know, uh, enjoy yourself and enjoy that rush of energy. Enjoy that new relationship energy. It's a, it's a hell of a drug. Mm-hmm. But read your books. Take the temperature of the room understand and connect with the community before you just start going in and uh, like going to poly meetups, trolling for dates and, you know, things like that. Like be respectful of the fact that this is a party that has been going on, you know, in some ways for all of human history, but definitely in very mindful and intentional ways for at least the last 10, 15 years. And to read one book or like listen to one Dan Savage podcast and think that you're ready to completely fundamentally change everything you thought you knew about relationships <laughs> it's a great way to wreck yourself to wreck the relationships that you're already in and to hurt a bunch of really wonderful people that would have made wonderful partners for you if you had just slowed down sort of considered everything that you were taking on and uh and gotten to learn the lay of the land a little bit first i ab- that is such wonderful advice slow down and I mean, I, I remember, you know, my first foray, it was a lot of the same, you know, same mistakes, you know, uh, luckily I was getting into it with somebody who, who wasn't necessarily identifying as poly. They were just like, oh, okay, you're poly. That's cool. I'll, you know, play along with this. This is fine. Um, but you know, I, I did the same thing. I ended up hurting that person and hurting my relationship and, you know, I, I wound up hurt. So um, taking that that moment to slow down. The other thing that I might add to that uh, is with the NRE, with that new relationship energy, don't make any major decisions. <laughs> yeah. Do not make any major decisions when you're on that NRE drug because it is a mind-altering drug, I promise. Um, Christy, man, this, this is good stuff. This is good stuff. All right, getting back to uh, the religious... I, I don't know, just, just breaking this down. Um, there was something that you mentioned uh, that you were saying when you're working with with your clients and they're, they're kind of new with you that we're breaking down a lot of their old beliefs. What are some of the most common beliefs? What are some of the, like the, the main pillars of that, that religious religion has taught us that we're working to to find our way around, I guess, since we're not breaking down religion, we're not getting rid of religion. We're not doing that, but we are finding ways to come to terms with our identity, even with our religious upbringing. So what are the, what are some of the major pillars that, that you're helping people through? Yeah. A lot of it, I think is just recognizing that nobody's keeping score. You know, that uh, there is no good place point system that is calculating whether you're doing a good job or a bad job. That doesn't mean go out and be reckless and careless with other people's hearts or minds or, or anything else. But recognizing that as far as any of us can tell, there is no objective right and wrong. There's just human beings doing their best to be kind and compassionate towards one another. And when you start to break things down in that way, you start to look at everything in terms of its expediency. Like what are the consequences of that action? What are the, uh, the moral ethics that go into that action? 
but it's not with this arbitrary mindset that says things should be this way or they should be that way. Giving ourselves permission to build the best version of our lives, not our best replication of somebody else's vision. Uh, that shows up in a lot of different ways. Uh, one that I find really fascinating, uh, we talked about on my show recently, is the idea of soulmates. Mm -hmm. You can survey a million people, and even if the vast majority of them don't believe in God or in magic or the supernatural, a lot of them, while they may not actively believe in, quote, soulmates, have this sort of idea that they just need to meet the right person. <laughs> or even if it's the right people, like uh, we're all just sort of uh, ions bouncing off of each other, trying to find like the perfect combination. And there's some truth to that. You know, if you aren't feeling it on the second date, like don't force it. You don't need to go on that third date. Mm -hmm. But I, I think people can really get roped into that sort of magical thinking as if there is a perfect plan for their life or a perfect partner for their life. Uh, and it takes a long time to really unpack how wrapped up in those ideas we we have become because they're just they're all around us. Yeah, well, that's cool, baby. I mean, you know how it is. <laughs> It's true. I mean, it's in everything that we watch. It's in, you know, all of our movies, all of our stories, you know, uh, there's always the the love triangle that's, you know, gross. And, you know, we can get rid of that any day now. Um, but but yeah, it, it really is about finding the one. And I mean, even in like you mentioned in our in our uh, polyamorous relationships, we are constantly looking for that for that connection. I mean, me personally, I'm, I'm always looking for, for a good solid relationship, right? Mm -hmm. If I, if I, if I'm going on a date, it is, you know, with that, Oh, I hope there's a second. I hope there's a third. And, you know, I hope that it leads to a good relationship, but uh, you know, I'm really going to take your advice to heart and you know what, I'm just going to enjoy the date for what it is at that time. And if it goes well, then cool. We can move on to, to whatever's next. Um, mm -hmm. But breaking that down, I mean, kind of going back to that, um, that's, I guess, something that, that, that we're breaking down from, from our religious upbringings, that, that idea of the one and the soulmates and all of that is. I, I mean, I definitely see it that way. And I see people express it that way. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's less about like necessarily the idea of soulmates. I mean, I kind of threw that out there as an example, but the mindset or the mentality behind it is that there is a way that things are supposed to go, that there is somebody somewhere with a plan and that we are somehow ruining that plan. And every mistake that we make is just taking us mm. further and further away, these like different degrees away from perfection. And there's just no such thing as Shangri-La. There is no perfection. There's just you and your relationship and if you're having a good time or a bad time, that's totally arbitrary and subjective. I mean, how do we measure any of this anyway? There is no right way to be. There is no right way to have a relationship. I mean, I'm not trying to create this world where there absolutely is no good or bad or no comparatives. But I am trying to say that whatever measurement we use to say that this is a good relationship or this is a bad relationship or this is right or this is wrong it's pretty arbitrary. 
And so if we're not taking a moment to ask ourselves, where are these ideas coming from? Why do I think this is wrong? Why do I think this is bad? Is there a justification for any of these thoughts? Then we're going to end up living out somebody else's values and somebody else's ideals without even meaning to or without realizing that that's what we're doing. Yeah, I would say, I mean, one caveat to that is if anybody's getting hurt physically, emotionally, whatever, if there's any kind of, of I don't abuse, like that's, yeah. that, that's definitely a, a, like red light. We're not going that direction. That's, that's, that's gotta be, you know, we got to agree that that's, that's not a good relationship. Sure. Yeah. No, uh, abuse is abuse. Right. And we can definitely acknowledge that. I'm not trying to create this model that like all relationships are, are uh, created equally or anything along those lines. It's more just coming to terms and, and finding a little bit of acceptance around our responsibility in all of this. We have to make decisions about what we think a good relationship includes. And we can, you know, lean on the advice of people we respect. We can look at the uh, information from experts and scientists and researchers, philosophers, artists. I mean, there's work to be done here. My, my point isn't to say, oh, all relationships are fine, so stop trying. My, <laughs> my goal is really just to say that we so often evaluate relationships, evaluate really ourselves and our lives and, and really everything as if there is some perfect standard, some platonic ideal that we are aspiring to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if you're not taking a second to stop and ask yourself, well, what is that ideal? What do I think would be the best or the perfect or the most whateverest relationship my, can, my, my relationship can be? That's a much more important question. Yeah. And doing that work, I mean, I, I do that all the time. And it's funny that, that you say it that way. As, as you're talking about it, I'm thinking of all the ways that I hold myself to like this really high standard. Like my business should be this particular way. My life should be this particular way. My relationships should be this particular way. And it is, you know, that ideal. It is that Shangri-La. It is that, you know, if everything was perfect, like this is what it would look like. And I struggle because it's like never going to get there. And I'm like beating myself up all the time mm -hmm. for not doing enough to get it there. And yeah. so it, it's, it's just like that. That's, that's one of these things that you just, you just hit me with right now. And it's like, Oh, so all I'm doing is torturing myself with this idea of what everything is supposed to be. Right. In my own opinion, but like how my life is supposed to be. And when it's not that way, like I'm tortured. Yeah. So, yeah. We I mean, we forget that the whole point of leading a you know healthy life is to be healthy, is to feel happy. <laughs> right. And so we are like so wrapped up in making ourselves miserable so that we can somehow achieve this version of happiness that doesn't feel like joy then we're really just chasing our own tails. And I, you know, yes, I talk about philosophy uh, in the clinical setting and on secular sexuality and, and these things. But as a counselor, 
it's always a very applied philosophy. You know, we can talk about like the, the problem of evil and the source of human suffering and the, you know, nature of impermanence and attachments. And we can have those conversations and, you know, give me a couple of beers and a nice campfire. Like I absolutely will have. <laughs> well, it's certainly more enjoyable than my average day. <laughs> but ultimately, I want to get to this place where we are asking the question uh, of ourselves, of our partners, of the professionals we work with, of really everybody that helps us to make up our lives. Is this leading me towards uh, contentment? Is this leading me towards peace? Is this mm -hmm. leading me towards joy? Or, you know, even if it's just leading me away from suffering, those mm. are all important things to be looking at. And I'd yeah. much rather be having those conversations than is this leading me towards being more Christ-like? Is this leading me towards being more uh, suitable according to my parents? Or, you know, living up to some arbitrary standard that doesn't reflect who we are as individuals. Or suitable to that partner that we're dreaming of or suitable to yeah. my business partner or whatever all these different things man that and, and to me that kind of takes me back to that idea of living in the now instead mm -hmm. of worrying about everything that i'm supposed to be or, or want and don't have yet so very very powerful stuff really really awesome ideas and things uh for me for our audience to think about uh christy it's it's been so much fun learning from you uh and and talking all these philosophies. Um, if somebody wants to work with you, if somebody wants uh, help from you or just to, to learn more about you, how can people get in touch with you? Where can they go to learn more and uh, to work with you? Yeah, well, if you Google the words Christy Powell, you're not going to find a whole lot of people with a beard. Uh, so I'll be, I'll be the one with the beard. Uh, you can find me on Secular Sexuality. We're on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast or uh, Valence Counseling on Facebook, Instagram, vcatx.com, valencecounseling.com. I'm all over and uh, I'd love to hear from you, whether that's, uh, you know, calling into our talk show or uh, if you're interested in clinical services or a referral or whatever else, shoot me an email. I'm super available and I'd, I'd love to just hear from your audience. Perfect. And uh is there anything that I missed? Any uh, last, just basically final thoughts that you'd like to share? Oh, man. Uh, way too many of them. Only to say that if you are listening to a podcast like this, I have to imagine you have taken certain steps to divorce yourself from the identity that you were handed at birth. Uh, when you were born, probably somebody told you that you were cisgendered, that you were straight, that you were monogamous, that you were allosexual. And some of those things might still be true of you. And that's fine and great and wonderful. There's nothing wrong with being monogamous or straight or any of these kinds of things. But if you're listening to this podcast, I have to assume that you've taken some steps to check in and to maybe cross out some of those adjectives that don't describe you. And I just want to encourage you on that journey because it's so invaluable and so important to find the you, you, rather than the you that was assigned at birth by a society that was, you know, kind of built on some arbitrary rules. Boom. Perfect. Christy, again, thank you so much. It has absolutely been a blast. Hey, glad to be here. I appreciate it. 
And thank you, as always, to our live audience for tuning in today. As a reminder, when we're live, you don't get any commercial interruptions, but the same cannot be said for those podcast downloads. So if you want to avoid the commercial interruptions, be sure to catch us live Monday through Wednesday, 2.30 Pacific time, or sign up for Patreon where you get access to our commercial-free RSS feed and support the show. Don't forget to subscribe on YouTube, wherever it is that you download your podcast. And if you haven't already, please leave us a review. We'll sincerely appreciate all right, everybody. Have a awesome day, whatever day it is, wherever it is that you're listening. Just don't forget to uh, live in the now. Live in the now. That's that's what I'm taking away most from today's show. Thank you so much again, Christy. And thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Practicing Polyamory podcast. Would you or someone in your polycule like to be a guest? Sign up at practicingpolyamory.com and join the conversation. Please support us by subscribing, liking, and following us on social media at Practicing Polya by clicking any of the affiliate links on our website or by subscribing at patreon.com.